You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 225 by Rudolf Steiner, 12 lectures entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, translated by Elizabeth Marshall. This is Lecture 8, entitled Three Perspectives of Anthroposophy, Number 1, The Physical Perspective, given in Dornach on the 20th of July, 1923. Recently, some members of the Anthroposophical Society, particularly those with a scientific background, seem to have developed the idea that there should be a back and forth of argument and counter-argument between the knowledge of the world given us by Anthroposophy and what, on the basis of assumptions that emerged in the second half of the 19th century, is given us by science. People seem to think that it could be extremely advantageous for anthroposophy to approach and accommodate science in this way. Especially because there is now scientific activity within the Anthroposophical Society, which in a certain sense is very gratifying, there have been many misunderstandings about this issue. We shouldn't forget that in the course of the 19th century, under the influence of what came to be called science, general education took on a certain character, which is completely at odds with anthroposophic knowledge of the world. We have to accept that someone who's grown up with thought patterns formed by current scientific life will have great difficulty in adapting to the anthroposophic way of thinking. So we should be aware that we can hardly expect any endorsement of the anthroposophic worldview from them. Those people whose thought processes didn't come under the influence of contemporary science as they grew up, or who as young adults turned away again from science, are the ones who will recognize the validity of the anthroposophic worldview. To illustrate what I've just said, today I'd like to speak from one angle about the path of anthroposophy in the world, so that those friends who've had a long journey to be here today can profit from these three lectures. I want to make them as aphoristic as possible. I'll refer to various phenomena of life in modern civilization, but mainly I like to base the subject matter of these lectures on anthroposophic considerations. We know what human beings experience when they go through the gates of death. Today we want to look first at the physical aspect of anthroposophy, just the first phase of life after passing through those gates. I've often mentioned how during their earthly lives a person's physical body is closely connected to their etheric body or body of formative forces, a connection maintained for their entire life on earth. When a human being interrupts their usual earthly state of consciousness through sleep and the dream state, then they bring the astral body and the I, capital, out of the physical body and the body of formative forces. 
These last are so closely tied to each other that they don't separate. In a normal person, the separation happens in the course of every 24 hours. So that the physical body and the etheric body on the one side and the astral body and the eye on the other separate from each other, but each side forms a closely connected whole. Now if a human being passes through the gates of death, then something different happens. First we discard the physical body, so that for a short time there is a connection between the eye, the astral body, and the etheric body, which didn't exist during earthly life. This connection grants us the experiences we have that last just a few days after death. What are these experiences? As it melts away from us, so to speak, we see all that we have absorbed during our earthly life through our senses and also through our reason, which combines what the senses perceive. During our earthly life, when we focus our eyes toward the outside, we get used to seeing before us objects and processes taking place in color in the outer world. And we retain these colorful impressions in our memories, even though they are fainter. We hold them in our memories. It's the same with the impressions of the other senses. And if we observe ourselves honestly, we have to admit that in our quiet moments, when we sift internally through our memories, What we really experience inside only consists of shadowy images of external reality. In ordinary consciousness, we live either in the direct, vivid experience of impressions of the outside world or in shadowy memories of them. We'll talk about what else we experience tomorrow. Today, we want to be completely aware of the fact that during our earthly life, Our consciousness is filled with colors and color processes draped over objects, with sounds, sensations of warmth and cold, with all those impressions we get from our senses and with their shadowy images in our inner soul lives, or, as we could say, in our memories. We want first to look at this as a kind of starting point. All that we experience like this melts away, when we go through the gates of death. Within a few days, all that filled our soul from birth to death has dissolved into the universal cosmos. We could also say, the body of formative forces, or the etheric body, separates from the eye and the astral body after having formed a connection with them that wasn't there before in earthly life. Now, let's look more closely at what this experience exactly is. I'll make a diagram. Let's assume that the human physical body is characterized through this diagram. The etheric body or body of formative forces is pictured here. We experience what I've just drawn, this connected form of the physical and the etheric body, only when we rest for a while in our inner selves when we wake up. We only ever experience it from the inside. And so that we can become very aware of this, I'll continue the diagram as follows and indicate the part of the etheric body that shines toward the inside. Since we discard the physical body after death, we don't have to pay too much attention to it here. 
and the part of the etheric body that shines toward the outside I'll indicate with this red color. Now, I've said that we only experience the etheric body from the inside just after waking up, meaning we only experience the part of the etheric body that shines toward the inside here in green. We don't experience the red part that shines toward the outside. When we've passed through the gates of death, the astral body and the eye form a certain bond with the etheric body in the following way. You have to imagine that the whole etheric body turns in on itself like a glove does when you take the part that usually touches the skin and turn it inside out with all the fingers so that the inside is turned toward the outside. In the diagram I have to use red for the part that in its earthly state was turned toward the outside but now has to be drawn as the inner part. And what I draw in green is the part that was inside and now is on the outside. The whole etheric body inverts itself. However, this inversion is accompanied by a rapid expansion of the etheric body. It grows, becomes enormous and spreads out immeasurably into the universe so that I have to depict it like this. There's a large green circle. Whereas with our eye and our astral body we used to be inside this, now we're across from the etheric body, which has expanded into the cosmos, but we see it from the other side. The red part that we used to wear, as a matter of course, on the outside, is now turned toward the inside. The green part that was turned toward the inside, and which was only meaningful in our earthly lives, is now on the outside, and no longer concerns us. It dissolves into the universe. In this green part, of course this is only a rough diagram, we find all that we've absorbed of the world during our life on earth, the sounds, colors, and so on. When the etheric body inverts itself and the green part goes to the outside, we lose this green part entirely, and as a result we experience a completely different world. We shouldn't think that after death we can have the same world that we had during our earthly life. This world disappears. To imagine that after death we could experience the same life, perhaps in a different version, that we had on earth is completely false. However, in comparison to earthly life, what we experience through the turning inside out of the etheric body or body of formative forces is gigantic, but also completely different. Initially, through the fact that the outside is now turned toward the inside, we experience in powerful impressions, not comparable to sense impressions, the whole creation of our earthly lives. We don't experience the red of the rose, but how we have created an image of the red of the rose in ourselves. But there it doesn't stay quietly as it does in physical earthly life. On earth the roses in the rose garden grow peacefully side by side, and you can feel at peace there with yourself. But here the rose garden becomes something entirely different. The rose garden turns into events in time. When we let our gaze wander from one rose to another, and have created the image of the first rose, then of the second, the third, and so on, inside ourselves, 
than this creation of one rose after the other as if in waves, as fast as lightning, not as actual roses, but as images rolling one after the other. This appears in a sea of experience as our inner life. So, now we have before us something we didn't see during life on earth, the creation, the gradual becoming of our earthly life. We know how our soul has developed from childhood onward, but what we paid no attention to during life now passes before our inner vision. It's as if we'd stepped out of ourselves, become a second self, and now watch how we gradually formed the simple ideas of childhood, the more complex ones of old age, and so on. We see how this little person develops on the inside. We see how, hour by hour, this earthly existence shapes itself. We even get the impression that this whole earthly life is really formed by the cosmos because all that we see here expands out into the cosmos and by the fact that we expand out, we realize that what was formed in us during life on earth was formed from out of the cosmos. Now gradually, we're able to see what this earthly life is all about. Let's start with what most people today believe in with regard to earthly life. Human beings eat, and through this they incorporate external substances into their own organism. This is an incontrovertible fact. We also transform these substances, starting in the mouth, then moving on further down the organism. What is absorbed in this way crosses over into the whole organism, merges with it. Then science says that we also continually lose substances. You only have to consider how you cut your nails and your hair, provided you're not bald, and you can see from the flaking of the skin how human beings lose matter. Nowadays it's common knowledge that by losing tissue in this way, human beings renew themselves completely in the course of seven years. If I were to express this dramatically, I could say that all that is sitting here on these chairs today, inasmuch as it consists of matter, was floating about somewhere in the world outside eight or nine years ago. I'll say this much. What is sitting on these chairs today can only have been gathered together in the last seven or eight years. If you were only what would have been sitting here as muscles and flesh more than seven or eight years ago, you're all no longer young, so you'll have regenerated yourself several times by now, then nobody would be sitting here. Thus, whatever you were carrying about as muscles or blood or whatever seven or eight years ago, none of that is sitting here now. You've shed all that or cut it off bit by bit by now. What does science with its materialistic stance say to this? It says that during these last seven years we've all eaten. What we've eaten sits here now, and what we ate before that doesn't. So, for example, each person sitting here has a heart. Now, the physical matter of the heart, science says, has renewed itself over the last seven or eight years, so that now, in comparison with your condition, let's say, nine years ago, you have a new heart. This is roughly what people think today. But it's not correct. People only think this because they don't realize what I was talking about before. 
and so they can't include it in their scientific observations and their scientific thinking. They know nothing about the inversion of the etheric body or body of formative forces and what it reveals to us after we've gone through the gates of death about how we developed from childhood onward. Because when you know this, then you're in a position to see into the human organism in a very different way, and only then can you learn the truth. You can believe that out of the cabbage, the potatoes and other vegetables, the cherries, the plums and so on, which we've eaten over the years, that out of all this the tissue of the heart has developed. But it's not true. In fact, the heart that you carry within you today doesn't essentially, and it's important that I say essentially, have much to do with the matter you've ingested over the last seven or eight years. It developed in a mysterious way out of the ether of the cosmos, which you have yourself, over the last seven or eight years, condensed into the heart muscle. So that the heart you have now hasn't renewed itself in the last seven or eight years out of physical matter, but out of the cosmos. You yourself have renewed your heart and your other organs out of the ether. Over the years, you've actually made a new person of yourself, not from the earth upward, but from the cosmos downward. After death, we can see all this activity of the ether body and how it functioned during the whole of our earthly life so that we always regenerated ourselves from out of the cosmos. Now your materialistic conscience, and all human beings have one, will say, but we did eat, we absorbed substances from outside, and they went through inner processes. Yes, but these inner processes aren't as closely linked to your real deeper human being as you might believe. The matter that you've absorbed through eating you've also discharged in one of the various ways humans do this. These substances pass through the human organism, but without essentially uniting with what humans are. They only form a kind of stimulus. We have to eat so that in an inner process something happens that stimulates us. Through this stimulation we develop an etheric activity relating to the cosmos, not to the earth. What happens with the food we eat, digest and absorb into our bloodstream is that processes develop that stimulate a corresponding etheric process as an opposing response. My old heart is stimulated by the physical but transformed matter that I ingest, but I make my new heart out of the world ether. Now we can say something that for modern thinking sounds preposterous. You're all sitting there. What you've renewed in yourself in the last seven to eight years didn't come from the potato and cabbage fields. It existed outside, in the cosmos, in the sun, the moon and the stars. It came down from there, and you reconstituted yourselves from the universal ether. This shows the mistake that necessarily follows from modern thinking. People only attempt to connect human regeneration to physical earthly matter, but not to the ether. And the result is that once you've got used to the ideas that are currently being taught in physiology, 
then you can't avoid regarding everything that anthroposophy teaches us as a kind of fantasy. Therefore you have to be quite clear how fruitless it is to enter into discussions about this, how only when you're proficient in both fields, modern science and anthroposophy, can you show how they can mutually benefit from each other. But we shouldn't cherish hopes that people who are accustomed to these materialistic ideas will be readily convinced by argument. These hopes are usually to the detriment of anthroposophy. You have to be completely clear in your ideas on this score. Then you'll recognize that these people have themselves to learn the whole process of getting to know anthroposophy before they can even begin to understand anthroposophic cognition and perception. As I said, it's essentially the case that we regenerate our new human being from the cosmos. Obviously, we won't find those substances in the cosmos that are in our hearts because there they are so fine that they can't be traced with physical earthly means. There they are etheric. But what appears as solid heart tissue at a certain age has been densified out of the cosmic ether. Thus, nine or ten years ago, what is sitting here today was up there, in the heavens, in the stars. And anything that is still there that has pushed its way from matter into what should have been formed from the etheric, that is the reason for illness. If we're carrying physical matter in us that is too old, then this is a reason for illness. And we gain deep insight into the essence of illness when we know how matter, instead of being expelled, contrives to stay put. For all matter that is absorbed as physical earthly substance is meant to be expelled. If it remains in the organism, then it's a cause of illness. We can only gain real knowledge by insight into those first experiences we have shortly after leaving our earthly body, and this knowledge affects even the practical side of life. So, after death, all our sense impressions, all the rational processes relating to our sense impressions, all this melts away. We see the world very differently. Minerals, plants, animals, as we saw them before death, are all gone. How human beings develop, that remains. We've gone through the gates of death. We've left the earthly arena. We've entered the cosmic arena and are surrounded by a different world. It's as if we've left the little cubbyhole of the earth and have entered the great hall of the cosmos and we feel as if we're spread out over the cosmos so that we truly wouldn't have room in the cubbyhole we've come from. We've now entered the cosmic arena where we'll stay until we again descend to earthly existence. And now we find ourselves in contact with a whole new world whose inhabitants are beings of the higher hierarchies. We have to expand these ideas that we've gained from observing human beings to encompass all of nature. I want to describe to you how we have to do this in the following way. Let's assume, for example, that we go back a long way in the evolution of the earth. There we'd encounter completely different beings and completely different earthly processes. As you know, in earlier epochs, 
giant beasts of a lower order lived on earth, which no longer exist today. The whole species has died out. Paleontologists and geologists search for their remains in the formations of the earth. Now, I'll try to make a diagram of this ancient development. When Ichthyosaurus, Plesiosaurus, and all these strange creatures roamed the earth, at that time, these beings weren't formed from physical earthly matter. They were formed through the cosmos, through the ether. And as the time approached when they gradually became extinct, all this ether matter, so to speak, was left over. See diagram yellow. Now, these beasts were no longer there, but all the etheric substance from which they were made remained, just as our etheric body remains. And at a later time, after this etheric matter had passed through the cosmos, it was the reason for the development of other creatures on the earth. And from them, in turn, only the etheric remained. Out of this, again, other creatures were formed. And in the end, the animal kingdom developed as it is today. If we have here three consecutive periods, the first, the second, and the third, then we have consecutive animal forms. But for those that follow to develop out of their predecessors, they first have to pass through the cosmos with the help of the ether, just as human beings have to pass through the cosmos between two earthly lives. And if we have beings here, see diagram red, then they too can pass over into the ether, and then, at a specific time, human beings can emerge out of the ether. But there's always the influence of the passage through the cosmos. Now, along comes a materialistic observer. They see all this and believe that the one is developed out of the other. Certainly, on earth they follow one another, but there's an etheric activity, a cosmic activity between each of them. In the 19th century, it became common just to look at what follows what on the earth and not to look at the cosmic activity beyond the earth. This is why the view prevails that here, as a final result, is the human being. Before that, simpler forms. Before that, even simpler forms, and so on. This is what we can learn about the development of organisms from natural science, which doesn't allow for the etheric. Natural scientists can't see more than they can see with physical eyes. If we accept their premise that they don't look at the etheric, if we put the question in such a way that we're only going to look at what belongs to earthly existence, then all that is left is the physical flow of evolution. That's what the Darwinists and Haeckel did, and demanding more of an earthbound science or even disparaging it is nonsense. For only when we include the knowledge of the etheric world can what is lacking in that theory develop. Polemicizing is pointless. If someone wants to stick to science, then they can do so. And they can say to those people who speak of other creative principles in the evolution of the world that all that is unimportant. If they've got used to the mere earthbound way of looking at things, then they will say the rest doesn't exist. If we want to see things differently then we have to acquire knowledge of the etheric world. For a valid discourse with modern science, there is no alternative 
but to say in your own field, distinguished scientist, you are completely correct. There is no other possibility and we don't deny that. But if you want to have a discussion with us, then you first have to acquaint yourself with the basic processes of the cosmic ether. Then we can talk to each other. Otherwise there is no basis for discussion. One of the members sitting here has written a little book about botany from the perspective of spiritual science, and a negative review of it has been published in one of the local papers. Now, how could we answer that? Imagine that you were yourself the botanist who wrote this review, having never heard of anthroposophy before, and having stumbled across the second edition of this little book, then you'd write just the same things. It's perfectly natural that you'd write the same as the critic did. The fact that one of the members didn't do so and instead wrote this book on botany is precisely the reason that he started to study anthroposophy. We only need to put ourselves in the position of someone like that and we could write all these critiques ourselves. But you see, if we want someone who has a certain frame of mind to be different, to be anthroposophic, then it seems to me similar to having a daughter who is blonde and suddenly wanting a dark-haired one. You can't change things just like that. What people have become through modern science can't be changed in the twinkling of an eye. We have to be realistic. The period following the middle of the 19th century has shaped the human soul in a particular manner. I'd like to give you another example from a completely different angle. You all know that there is something called analytical psychology or psychoanalysis. As I've often said here, psychoanalysis gives us some good things, but it's based on an incomplete and dilettantish view of human physiology and on a dilettantish view of the human soul, human psychology. These two aspects interact and potentiate each other, so that psychoanalysis is dilettantism squared. If you multiply d with d, you get d squared. This has a lasting effect, even if it is dilettantish. So that you can understand how all this developed out of an inadequate physiology and psychology. But this type of thinking rubs off on souls of human beings. Now we have an immense amount of literature on the subject. You could fill a large library with psychoanalytical literature. The authors argue vehemently in these books, so that if you follow them it can be quite interesting. Here too there has been talk of psychoanalysis, and we could also fill up a library with books devoted to it. But when so much has been written in this field, then there must have been a lot of study invested in it, and this rubs off on the soul of human beings and dyes them a certain color. Now, here is something very interesting. Psychoanalytical literature already existed in Central Europe in 1841. This comprised only 14 lines, which said, quote, In our modern, overcrowded consciousness, we have to cope with many things that we can't really deal with adequately because we just don't have the time. They remain in us as tasks which we could do something with. As Tieck says, these are unborn souls, as if in limbo in the recesses of our souls. Close quote. So, you see these 14 lines, here they're shorter, contain the whole principle of psychoanalysis. 
back then they called them unborn souls, demanding life and floating in limbo in the recesses of our souls. Now they call them provinces, soul provinces, buried deep in the soul and so on. Back then they treated this so lightly that a few lines were enough. Today our civilization has come to a point where whole libraries are full of the books written about it. But the essence, the fundamentals, are all in these fourteen lines. At the time, the fact that fourteen lines were enough meant that the libraries were full of other subjects and people learned quite different things than they do today. If today a young student of psychology has to write a dissertation, then they can't avoid psychoanalysis. They have to study it. And this colors their soul. In 1841, you could express the essence in these fourteen lines. No one thought it could have such enormous importance for human thinking. And so it was with many things. It's of great significance whether or not we consider the facts when we study something. Back then, in 1841, people sleepwalked through psychoanalysis. Such thoughts only occurred to this one person, Karl Rosenkrantz, whose fourteen lines I read to you. He once dreamt about it. Dreams dissolve and don't have such an influence on life, and people filled their waking life with other things. Today, however, people sleepwalk through many things because their waking days are filled with psychoanalysis and similar themes. We really must examine this closely. Then we'll be able to say at what point we have to get involved so that anthroposophy can be recognized in the world. At all events, we can't just get into a discussion. This polemicizing is just as if someone is lying in a room fast asleep and snoring loudly while someone else is awake and trying to convince the sleeping person of what he is saying. They can't understand. And likewise, it's not possible for two people to understand each other in the life of the mind if both are asleep for the other's field and only awake for their own. Obviously, there will be numerous people who are asleep for anthroposophy, and they won't be waking up to it any time soon. But it would be good if anthroposophists wake up for the others, so that they don't just have a blind faith in anthroposophy, but understand from real insight into the qualities of other fields why anthroposophy is so comprehensive and includes all that other people regard as separate. And how, because it goes beyond the narrow limits of normal areas of expertise, anthroposophy expands the horizon. Here I've given you one of the perspectives, the one that follows when you look in more detail at the earthly world surrounding you, which melts away when you die. It's the physical perspective, and if we really want to understand it, it leads us to the next level, which is the etheric. In a later lecture, we'll look at the soul level and examine how human beings can wake up to the soul perspective. Then we'll finish with a study of the spiritual perspective. These are the three perspectives of anthroposophy. The end of Lecture 8